I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occurred just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello and welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. My name is Taylor Sparks, and I'm Associate Professor at the University of Utah in the Material Science and Engineering Department, and today I'm joined by, in person, the whole crew. Andrew, Jared, how are you guys? We're finally back. No it's, more. It's been some time. It was a long sabbatical. It's good to be back in person. Granted, Andrew and I did have a special uh, in-person this Somewhat is true. Recently, Jared and I got together in the meat space. Yeah. <laughs> what did we? I don't remember what the episode it was. was. It's bulletproof been so materials. Long. Yeah, it was bulletproof materials. I listened to that. It was a treat for me. I got yeah. to actually just listen to an episode. I didn't have to make it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's the joke I was making. I still don't have a podcast to listen to because by the yeah. time we're done, <laughs> I don't want to listen to it. Yeah. Hey, Sparks and I have done a few just us. So that's your fault. You don't listen to our stuff. This is true. There are some on the backlog that yeah. I didn't participate in that I still haven't listened to. Well, good news for Andrew, especially. I made a series of five episodes that you can listen to. So they're going to be coming out. In fact, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard the first two or three already. They are sponsored by the UKRI, which is sort of like the National Science Foundation-ish of England, UK. And they had some awesome episodes. So we hope that you enjoy those ones. But we are back and we're doing something not UKRI related today. We're talking about something timely. And that is, you can't escape it, large language models. Jared's shaking his head. I don't know. I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them. I've seen, a, I've seen just seen too many of those like tweets and stuff recently talking about all the different ways. And this is early oh, on. Yeah, those make me crazy. Have you seen the things that, that people have like yeah, tricked It's like the AIs. AI influencers. Like, I gave it $100 and I asked it and look how much money it gave me. Yeah. And then it's never true. Yeah. And it's always silly. There was, Well, there was one that I thought was funny, which I don't even know how real it was, but they were talking about doing, was that some hackathon and they were doing a bank AI that they were testing and there's this really funny tweet. I don't know. Again, I don't know how real this was, but it was funny, which was the guy had said that change my name on to the card on file. And then he said, what's my name? And then he got uh, it to give it his name. Obviously it wasn't, yeah. you know, it wasn't in production. It was just a test, but it was kind of funny the way that people started getting around. So what I'm rules. hearing from Jared is not a lot of enthusiasm no. from LLMs. No. You can tell by my excitement that I'm pretty pumped about them. I'm going to tell you why. Andrew, where do you stand? You know, I'm kind of a natural skeptic. Uh, you know, as I see it, it's it's literally like, "Hey guys, look, we built the uh, we built the dangerous AI from the hit movie. Don't build the dangerous AI." Yeah, <laughs> it's here. Um, Very but, cool. You know, based on what we're going to talk about in this episode, there seems to be a lot of really interesting potential for this technology, and I think it's, you know. Technology is sort of like a golem, I've heard it described, in the sense that it's always going to be kind of marching forward, and we can kind of maybe change its trajectory, but, you know, once something like this has emerged, it's really, you know, we can't really put the... Uh, Pandora's box is open. Yeah, we can't put it back in the bag, and unless, short of something like a Dune-esque Butlerian Jihad, yeah. we are going <laughs> to have to, uh, we're going to have to deal with it. So, in today's episode, let me lay out the arguments for why maybe there is something valuable going on here because it's easy to point to hallucinations or it's easy to point to you know errors or ethical issues with it 
but can it actually do something positive for science? I'm going to try and make that case. And so this paper comes out of Digital Discovery, which is a great journal. We publish there quite a bit. Um, the title is 14 Examples of How LLMs Can Transform Material Science and Chemistry, a Reflection on a Large Language Model Hackathon. And if you look at the authors, these are awesome people. I see a bunch of my friends. It's Kevin Jablonka, it's Josh Bokarsley, it's Ben Blazik, Andrew White, many, many others. This is a great who's who of who's working in this space right now, which is pretty exciting. Um, this was, I believe, hosted by the good folks at Globus, at MDF, Materials Data Facility. I could be wrong about that, but I think that they're the ones who are sort of organizing this event. And essentially, in a very short amount of time, they brought people together and tried to show what could you do to solve real materials or chemistry problems in hours, not months, in hours, right? And the amount of time that they have to actually work on this was pretty brief. So what could you actually do? So with that said, and they, they mentioned this in the article, this is not peer-reviewed. The results of this are not peer-reviewed. But the scope of it and the ideation is what they're presenting here to give people an idea of what's coming because, you know, this was this event already took place in March, which was, as of time in the recording, this was six months ago. I'm sure that we these are already, many of these are being published already, and it's only going to accelerate going forward. Well, I've got a, I've got a question, and this is very Sparks-oriented, and maybe this is my own ignorance. You do machine learning. What is the difference between a large language model and machine learning? So it's a it's a type of machine learning, yeah. right? It's not something separate. It's a type. It's a subcategory, just like deep learning is a subtype of machine learning, which is a subtype of, subtype of AI, right? Mm -hmm. um, so large language models, maybe this is a good place to start. What is a large language model? So I think the best way to describe a large language model is it's just a word predictor. It predicts the next word given an input, which can be a string of text. It could be a question. I mean, that's how we think of it with ch things like chatbots and ChatGPT. Um, is as a dialogue or a question, but it doesn't have to be. You could give it the first, you know, you know, X number of pages of A Tale of Two Cities and see what it spits out in giving you the next words. And maybe it's going to tell you the story of the book and maybe it's going to do something totally different, but that's what it's meant to be. It's supposed to predict one word after the other. So if that's a, the basic large language model, that's natural language processing, how do we cross over to something that seems like it can answer questions in a way that really is eerily like a human that is when you get into the realm of fine-tuning. And you want to talk about fine-tuning? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to, well, let's just say, okay, you want something that's good at writing words or predicting the next word. You probably want to give it tons of different examples. But, you know, that might be things like from a tale of two cities. It might be a <laughs> or recipe. Or Reddit. <laughs> it might be Reddit. It might be someone's text messages. You want it to have a general sense as well as understanding how to formulate grammar or talk in a way that maybe is more formal or more casual. But if we're looking at it for maybe a, a scientific application, we probably want it to actually have more specific knowledge or maybe it's language tailored to the scientific field. And so fine tuning would be something like giving it, you know, at the end of its training or after completing that initial general training, giving a very tailored data set that's focused on, you know, academic papers or academic research such that it then learns maybe more specifically to tailor its outputs to that, yeah. uh, to conform to that, that space. So the real magic that takes, you know, because GPT-3 was out for a long time. It was several years, and I remember using it. And you could ask it to do things like write essays, and it was still pretty impressive. But all of a sudden, things changed with ChatGPT. ChatGPT is a fine-tuned version of the GPT-3 large language model that's now been specifically designed to engage in a question-and-answer dialogue sort of way. So to do that, they had to essentially have a human ask it a question and then the chatbot was able to provide several different responses 
and they did reinforcement learning because a human would grade those responses. So they call it reinforcement learning from human feedback, right? And it's actually kind of a, you know, controversial topic because I mean, here's a time.com article where it's talking about how OpenAI used Kenyan workers and they were paying them less than $2 an hour to make ChatGPT less toxic. I mean, talk about a toxic company. <laughs> I mean, I have, anyways, so there's, there's problems maybe with it, but the technology in itself is pretty exciting. Now you have a human providing feedback to really encourage it to produce human-like feedback to things. And all of a sudden, something that was a interesting but not widely used model became one of the most widely used overnight, essentially. Now, maybe that's hype, and maybe it's going to, it is drawing back a little bit. But I think the LLMs are here to stay, and it's because they're able to fine-tune it to make it behave much more like a human. It is wild to see the explosion of the discussion on AI. It was like night and day. I swear one day I had barely heard about it. The next thing you know, everyone's using it. Yeah. Well, you got all these science and tech influencers now. Like people make their money yeah. off of just making YouTube channels about pop mm-hmm. side topics. Also, a lot of uh, business influencers started using ChatGPT to like write business emails and do. Yeah, there's probably like a lot stuff. of cold email stuff. But yeah. you can always tell. There's kind of some telltale marks. I found them to be quite wordy. Also, it's formulaic. It's very formulaic, mm-hmm. which obviously makes sense because it is following the rules of grammar where humans tend to be a little wrong. Like rules. Well, isn't yeah. that, that's always the joke of like the bots in order to try to make them seem less like bots. They just include these very obvious spelling errors. <laughs> so that is the idea. We've given you a, at least our sloppy definition of what large language models are. What is ChatGPT? So what does any of that have to do with chemistry? At the hackathon, they brought in 14 different teams and they ended up working on a variety of different projects. It's not like a, uh, an instance where they all gave them one challenge and they all tried to tackle the same challenge with different approaches. Not at all. They kept it pretty blue sky and said, show us how you're using these language models for chemistry or materials. And what they found is that of the 14 groups, they broke it into really four different areas. The first was predictive modeling. So if you've heard any of our episodes on machine learning in the past, you'll hear that you know, Andrew and I have been doing this for a long time. Predictive modeling is a big part of what we do. The second category is interesting. It's about automation and novel interfaces, which I think is one of the really exciting areas for LLMs. Um, it's essentially taking the unexciting parts of our job and automating them, and it does it really well. The third part is knowledge extraction. I'll have some words to say about that because we're now working in that area as, as researchers. And the final is in education. So with that said... Should we just dive into it? Yeah, let's just go in order. Okay. Um, so here, the, one of the first papers I want to talk about, uh, there's actually a preprint, which I think has been published, though. So this came from Jablonka and Barrett Smith and company. And the title of this paper is, Is GPT-3 All You Need for Low Data Discovery in Chemistry? So GPT-3, essentially because it's a language model, what they did is they took a language-based representation of a molecule. They used smile strings, I believe. And they had it train off of smile strings and some sort of output property and showed that actually it does kind of a not terrible job, particularly in this limit of low data discovery. And so I wasn't surprised to see that of the 14 different projects working on this, some of them were in that realm where you're taking language models and your input is now text and your output is some sort of materials property. There were some interesting updates. For example, they've taken a little bit further using things like in-context learning yeah, so it, essentially what they're doing is they are they're taking some data and they're feeding it earlier in the chat. So if you've ever used ah. ChatGPT... So it's prompt engineering. 
it, yeah, in a way, like it can it can reference older things in the conversation, and some people take that to believe it's remembering. But my understanding is they're actually just refeeding that input and in the previous context all the time. So what that would look like here is they would say like, oh, you know, this smile string or this configuration of molecules corresponds to maybe an alcohol group or. Ha- yeah. Give some sort of property. So instead of needing thousands of examples of that string associated with a label of alcohol, yeah. you're essentially telling it. Yeah, you're basically giving it a very short lesson, essentially, and it can reference that then when uh, generating you know new words and text. Yeah. So does it truly understand that then, or is it just basically going off of your explanation? Well, I, I think that's one of the exciting things about it, and a couple other groups talked about this too, is that it allows you to provide human domain knowledge in a really easy way, right? Instead of having to codify this, like anybody who's trying to do like technically about Bayesian process, you are able to encode physics informed, you know, priors. It's hard. This yeah. makes it really easy. You know, one of the projects that works on this, they were essentially designing better concretes, right? Yeah. And it showed that they could basically say, they can give it a design rule like, hey, heads up, a high water to cement ratio reduces strength. And by providing that as text, as a very fundamental, you know, domain knowledge understood that concept, it could actually make predictions with that knowledge much easier and with way fewer examples, which I think is exactly the sort of strength of language models in that it allows humans to encode easily domain knowledge so that they can work alongside ML models. Yeah, that that particular example really stood out to me. And they actually show kind of how they did it. They would provide in almost a JSON or a dictionary format the, the tabular data. Um, and so it, it kind of understands, or at least it's been given examples of what tabular data looks like there. And they were able to literally just ask it, like, given these inputs, predict this. And they think they got, like, what, like an R squared of, like, 0.67. And then they provided it that high water cement ratio kind of domain knowledge and asked it to make a new prediction. And it ended up performing what they say comparably to a random forest model or surpassing a random forest model. Now, there wasn't too much information yeah, about and none of this you know, how this was but I mean. But they should it seems at least reasonable. It was comparable, yeah. Or at least it was able to provide a, a a prediction that was seemingly at least reasonably accurate. And that is really cool because so often we understand things about processes, but maybe don't necessarily have the data or have a good way of actually putting that in there. We have to engineer all these different features in a model, and that can be really hard, especially to just give it such a, I don't know, such a, explain maybe a very complicated physical relationship. Yeah. Plus, so many things are more of an art than a science. For example, like what comes to mind is making um, ceramic slip casting. Oh yeah, it it's amazing how many different variables go into that, and how many like how many times you really have to do it before you really get it, or how many little nuances there are that I don't know. If you've ever tried to look up how to make a ceramic slip in the literature or try to learn it, it's hard. There's not much information out there. Yeah. Well, what I think is really cool is that they're showing how you can bias it. You can provide this domain knowledge. But what I think you could also do with these models is you could ask it, like train it on a bunch of things and then start asking it, querying for interpretability. Like having seen these, can you give me examples of things that are correlated with, you know, some basic design rules? I haven't tried that myself. I bet that it would do a fairly good job. Mm. Um, here's another cool example in this sort of property prediction. So it's one if I think some of our listeners might be familiar with the Matt Tavek paper that came out in, I don't know, maybe 2018 or something. This was a cool paper where they essentially used word embeddings to learn chemistry. So the vast majority of people in the composition-based feature vector world, right, we we say that if you're going to make a prediction of something and you only have its chemistry, then what are you going to do? You're going to take the elemental properties of each constituent in the formula, things like melting point, number of electrons, all that jazz, and you're going to 
combine them together, maybe take the average, the range, and that now becomes the average vector that represents your material. Mat2Vec did something totally different. It used a tool called Word2Vec, which is a word embedding approach where from a corpus of text, if a formula shows up, they can learn an embedding that relates it to real chemical phenomena. Now, they only trained it off of abstracts. Their ideation is that, you know, there maybe is enough chemical knowledge stored in those abstracts that it would work. And so it's a good paper. You should look at it. I think it's interesting. But one of the groups here at this hackathon took it a step further. They said, okay, that's okay. But they trained off of those one time, meaning that's a static embedding. And so the way that they extended this is they basically said, let's use that exact same approach, but we're going to use that off of large language model inputs. So you can contextualize that in the context of whatever it is that you're asking it about. It, it updates the, the embeddings in real time. So these are now dynamic embeddings, which I think is a really cool idea. And they showed that it seems to work and that you can even use this approach to actually be generative, to generate new molecules. They were actually looking at new hydrogen carrier molecules, but I think that was a super cool idea. Not surprising this comes from Logan Ward. If anybody knows him, he's a great guy, so a great thinker. I think it's a really cool approach. Well, this gets into the other issue, big issue with LLMs, which is you said that it's trained off of abstracts, which means that it's other people's work, technically. Well, this and is a can of worms, yeah. Yeah, and so that's a whole, obviously, other issue is how do you copyright stuff when you are also using other people's knowledge? Even yeah. though it's publicly available, it's yeah, it's very murky. One of my former grad students, uh, Ryan Murdoch, undergrads actually, the guy was brilliant. Uh, we published a bunch of papers together. He likes to make art using generative AI. Mm -hmm. uh, he was doing it before it was cool, I like to say. Like he was <laughs> one of the real early pioneers. He went on to work at Adobe and built their tool out for this. But he, his one of his pushbacks, one of the arguments I found compelling is like, well, would say whoever your favorite artist is today, Banksy or whoever you like, right? are you really going to criticize them for having gone and sat in a museum and taken in inspiration from people? Like yeah, how no. is it all that different? Yeah. Like they can still do something unique to, to them. And right? the same way that people can still read uh, abstracts themselves and then come up with their own ideas. Yeah. Sure. I understand so, that. So I don't buy that argument. Now there are instances where it will copy pasta, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's a problem. Yeah. I'm not saying that this is like free of ethical considerations, but the general idea that how can it ever do something on its own, if all, if all it's ever seen is the world around it, well, that's all of us. Yeah. We are all the exact same way. Uh, Andrew? Yeah, it'll make sense here. Okay. Uh, there was another really cool one that relates a little bit to my master's thesis work on genetic algorithms. Um, basically, you know, molecules are quite complex, and so when you want to optimize or try to discover new molecules, it can be kind of difficult to come up with any sort of, in genetic algorithms, like a way of... of I don't know, let's say mating two molecules. Like if you had two and you were like, what would be an offspring of these? Yeah, alumina kind of and spinel, like what does the baby look like? Yeah, or something like that even. And so commonly it's kind of a, an, a random process. It'll, it'll follow some sort of probability distribution. You can encode some physical rules, but it ends up being kind of hard. So what they ended up doing is they said, okay, we know SMILES representations of molecules are in a text-based form, uh, which is great for these language models. And SMILES, if you're not familiar, is essentially just a, a way of representing a molecule in, in terms of, uh, of a, just a text encoding. So it ends up being a series of, of letters. Essentially, the characters that they're next to is implying that they are connected to those via bonds. Mm -hmm. And that way you could basically store molecular data or the structure of a molecule in a much simpler format that a model could operate on or it could be better stored in a database and then recalled at a later point. You don't need to store images or some sort of vector representation of all these. 
And that ends up being also great for these genetic algorithms because you can randomly perturbate or mix these different structures. But what ends up happening is you end up creating quite a lot of non-physical results because a random mutation yeah. or a random sort of mating of two different molecules, there's no way to guarantee that it falls physics. But what they thought was, okay, maybe if our LLM understands a little bit of the underlying physical limitations and chemistry, if we have it actually perform the mating operations and insist that it make things that are physically possible based on its you know, in-context learning, maybe it'll produce better results. And they showed that it does. Like, even if, I mean, that's doing the whole process, but even if you just step back a second and say, here's a smile string, tell me the common fragments here. It does a pretty good job of breaking up the realistic fragment chunks of it. And once you've got that, like, that's half the battle because then you can say, all right, now combine them and it's going to be thinking in terms of fragments. So it's going to be much more realistic in the types of things it puts together. Yeah, what was kind of cool is, so they did two kind of tests again, limited in time, they they had their, their typical genetic algorithm approach where they randomly meshing um, smile strings based on some sort of fragmentation rules, and then they had the LLM ones. In the random case, uh, they, you know, so they produced 32 of these, uh, and then they fed these to two independent organic chemists and had them judge whether or not these would be physically viable. For the random case, they said that 21 out of 32 would probably be physically viable. In the case that of the molecules that were generated by the LLM, they said that 32 out of 32 would be physically viable. So cool. So at the very least, yeah. they look reasonable. Yeah. And who knows what real peer review will say on this, but that's that's compelling preliminary approach. There's something to this. One of the things I liked also about this is they pointed out the shortcomings of this technique. So there are a couple of shortcomings. Um, for one thing, it doesn't always generate a valid smile string. It will sometimes produce a string that breaks the rules for how you form these smile strings. But one of the more problematic ones is the idea behind uh, genetic you know, algorithms. It often deals with large volumes of potential candidates you know, as the, for the gene pool. And the problem is that language models don't have an infinite memory. Um, if you are familiar with, maybe if you played around with ChatGPT or anything, and you've had it, you, maybe you asked it to write a 10-page you know, short story, and it produces something that's just a couple pages long, it's because there are this these token size limitations. In other words, there's only so much text that it can contextualize at a time for memory constraints. And so there are going to be some limitations on the number of parent molecules that you're going to be able to use as examples because of the token problem. Now, there's token size expansion or reduction are two active, very active areas of large language models broadly. So maybe this is something that will be overcome, but I like that they pointed those sort of challenges out even in this preliminary work. So maybe we should switch to the next one and that is this, uh, you know, using these to, to, to modify interfaces or assist in the interfaces and interactions with different technologies. Yeah, here's my, my explanation of this. Uh, unrelated to materials and chemistry for a moment, I have an old CV. I've been a professor for 10 years. And so it was time to update my CV. And I was like, dang it, I got to do this in LaTeX. Because when I wrote it, I was still a word boy, <laughs> which was <laughs> never a good idea. But I've long since switched over to LaTeX. But I didn't want to update my CV because there's like, I've got 100 publications on there. I just passed 100 this year, which I'm psyched about. But like, that's a lot of formatting. And I was just like, I don't want to get around to that. Dude, I took that Word document and section by section, considering the token size limit, I passed it into ChatGPT and said, format this nicely into a LaTeX CV, you know, publication section beautiful it was so beautiful it did all the coding for me i didn't have to do any of that before in fact it's funny you know andrew put together a youtube video for me for writing latex <laughs> i made sparks so much money on that video <laughs> that's made me a ton of money but here's the thing it was teaching people how to write in latex and you don't have to anymore you can t you can write in whatever you want and then say 
convert this to LaTeX. So that idea of interfacing between different programs, I, the, the word to LaTeX is a silly example, but there's many not silly examples. Anybody who's learned how to use technical software, especially when it has like a, a, a command interface, knows what a pain in the butt it is. And if you could have a large language model that has seen examples of that and can help you with the coding busy work there, boy, it's really useful. I hope that our listeners, if you're coders, that you're using things like GitHub Copilot or things of that nature because it dramatically increases your programming speed, your capabilities really get expanded. Yeah, originally I was like, oh, it's good to learn all these, but there's so many tools out there and they all have a different sort of interface style uh, about them. You know, some of them follow maybe in Python, even some of the libraries, some of them follow like a Pythonic style code. Others are like, no, we're just doing our own thing. <laughs> we just do our own crazy and thing. It, it's too much to have to just go in and read the documentation. Yeah, come on. Like, like, do you really want to look up graph. like, yeah, do you want to look up like a regex script every time? Or do you want to ask ChatGPT like, find every sentence with this word plus the one before it plus the sentence, two sentences afterward, right? You can just say it that in human language and, out pops the regex script. Yeah, I, I do want to say though, and this is, I don't know if it's the best time to do it. You need to know what you're doing. Like, yeah. there's, there is a risk of, yes, GPT, these large language models are enabling people to do more than they could have in terms of now I can use this tool without having to really learn the fundamentals. But there is some danger there too in using tools without actually understanding them. You dropped a good word earlier too, which is you really do need to be good at prompt engineering. There's a, a talent not to understanding what it puts out, but actually getting it to put something that you want to read out. I don't know about a talent, but hey. do you have to kind of learn how it's going to respond? I guess it's not a talent. It's a skill. How about that? They've it's been skill. described as like bullshit artists. And just like when you're talking to any con man, you have to learn to be skeptical. I feel like I have to be really skeptical with the output of any of these things and realize like, I don't actually like how it freight. If I'm asking it to help write a paragraph... I'm skeptical of it. If I'm having it help coding, I'm trying to understand what are the steps that it's actually doing, but it's still a lot faster than doing it myself. Yeah. But you also know a little bit of the fundamentals there. Imagine someone who yeah. doesn't have that coding fundamental. Yeah. I mean, as John Lemaire, president of planetary sales at Yayo Corp once said, study the fundamentals or die trying. And uh, <laughs> in this case, like you should, you can use it to accelerate coding or maybe even help you learn better coding as well. That's what I think. So for example, I used to teach the Python class for our department. And I think the way- anymore? I not? They, they send it back to computer science, which I'm like conflicted about. But I think if I was going to teach it again, if they asked me to teach it again, which I probably would happily do, I would start with ChatGPT or GitHub Copilot. Really? And I would say, I'd give them an assignment on day one, a task, like the thing that they typically, after 15 weeks of pain, barely can learn how to do. And I think that we would do it together. And together, I would show them how we're debugging it and what the functions are doing. And you can even ask it. You can ask these things like explain these lines of code simply for me. Like write the pseudocode for what's going on here. Write a commented version of what's happening. It does a great job of elaborating. And so I think that's how I would learn is by much more project-based and Socratic learning. Like we'd actually try and do something and learn the fundamentals by doing. I, I say that now. Who knows when I tried it, if that would actually work. But that's what I think I would try. I don't <laughs> after TAing that class twice. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think you just, you'd equip people, you know, people would be able to program better for sure. Not better, but they would have more, I don't know, it'd be more accessible to them. They would be making things. There'd be more broken things that get made that they but don't know. Coding is also a matter of collaboration and I think it would get even harder. The most interesting thing to me about chat GPT is it can write code surprisingly well compared to Dude, some of the other stuff. So good. Like, uh, you know, that's I'm what I mostly use it for. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I asked it some mechanical engineering questions in the past, and its knowledge of that is 
obviously a lot less fleshed Something out. To be desired. Yeah, yeah, it's just because it doesn't really know how to do it because when you code and you're teaching something, you're going to give it a lot of coding information when they're teaching the LLM. So I think it probably got more coding information than anything else. And so it's pretty good at writing basic code compared to other stuff. Okay, but what happens when you run into tokens? What happens if your work doesn't allow you to use it? Oh. All of a sudden you're useless. Well, no, I, I agree. I'm not saying that. But, I'm I mean, just saying the, it's one The future sided. certainly seems to like, there will be some form of accessibility yeah. of this. It seems, you know, if the we're talking about inevitability. Is, is as long as it stays in the coding domain, it doesn't affect us as much. Yeah, we need job <laughs> security here. Yeah. Well, this is a good example of one of the projects that got worked on in the hackathon, right? So this is a group from Andrew White, who is a, a friend of mine, and I think somebody who's doing really interesting, cool stuff. And so I was surprised to see that this was the, what they worked on. Um, their team, I don't know the other individuals, but they called it Mappy LLM. Mappy, I'm familiar with. That's the Materials Project API. We like Materials Project. I use it a lot. Um, and when you're using the Materials Project, there are a set of querying rules. Like, let's say that you want to, of all the however many compounds are in that database, hundreds of thousands, right? You only want to pull stable oxides. So you have to use MongoDB query rules for this, where you actually have to say, like, here's the keyword that has, like, you're searching for oxides. Maybe they have a keyword for oxides. Maybe you're actually sending it a chemical formula and saying that it has to have any formula that has at least an oxygen. So the, the, the syntax for that is, if you see a couple examples, it's not too bad to do it yourself, but it is cumbersome. And then you start adding other rules, like, okay, it has to be that, plus it's now you know, has a certain conductivity or whatever. You have to need to combine these together in a way that I'm constantly checking the rules for. What they built in this Mappy LLM is basically an LLM that will create those queries for you and query it automatically. So it makes it much easier to use the Materials Project API because you can also just ask it like a human would. So again, this is just a really great way to make our lives easier because it's teaching us to use the tools without learning the, the nitty-gritty details but getting the same result because you can just query it as if a human, like it's much more Star Trek. It allows you to talk to computers as if it was a person because it's doing the conversions for you. Yeah. I kind of wonder, you know, a fine tuned LLM for every single application might not be possible, but imagine let's say materials project creates a block of text for in context learning. That's been sort of optimized for that. So you paste that in there and then you say, you know, learning from this context now perform this operation. Bingo. And there was another example, you know, this one was called small talk where it was the same sort of thing. It's like, okay, there are visualization tools, like they're talking about 3d mold, right? But there's others. Yeah. And essentially you can learn how to do that yourself. I mean, anybody who's learned how to plot in like matplotlib or plotly or whatever else has gone through that painful learning curve, but then it's worth it. Cause you can make these really cool things. And they're essentially using the exact same thing where you can provide a human description of what you're looking for. It generates the code for you, whether it's a mermaid script or whether it's a JD mole, right? And you can, again, use sort of human description, like give me a pale yellow, and it does a pretty good job of finding what pale yellow means, right? Um, I think that's pretty cool. And I think they also mentioned a little bit about you have different tools that you want to talk, you want them to talk together. And there's a lot of coding that's actually a sort of glue code, I think is the term that they use, where it's like, okay, query this with Python, and then here's a short little function or script to bring it over into this other thing, and then query that. And, um, you know, having it be the one interfacing between those can be quite nice. One of my favorite GIFs on the internet about machine learning shows like a Rube Goldberg machine where like the guy's got like, I don't know, it's like the ball that's supposed to be like bouncing and doing all these funny things all on its own. But really like a human is like lifting it and moving it at every interface along the way. And that's glue, right? That's glue code. And so humans are often doing that heavy working. And I think that's exactly the sort of thing where LLMs can really make our lives a lot easier.
and interfacing between some of these softwares is incredibly painful. It sucks. Because it's like oh, it sucks. interface or, you know, application one requires data in a specific format, but application two outputs it in a totally different format. And so you have to, you know, change everything around, change file types, yeah. you know, remove this period or something because it just can't handle it. It's pretty annoying. I'm going back to my silly example of like mod- updating my CV to LaTeX. Like I, I'd put our podcast episodes on there and my normal publications aren't the newest ones first, but that one I think I wanted the other way. And so it was really easy to go to it and say like, oh, you ranked these earliest to last, re-enumerate them from, you know, late, from the last one to the earliest or, or whatever it was, and it was able to switch them really easily and do all the formatting for me instead of me by hand switching that out or trying to programmatically type a thing, which, you know, it saved me real time. Like, that was 20 minutes that it saved me of, of doing that editing in one line of code. Pretty awesome. There was another cool instance where, you know, there's a lot of great optimization tools. Invasion optimization has become kind of a hot topic, especially in the experimental realm. Um, maybe it's even past being a hot topic. It's but it's it's commonplace. Yeah, really good. Um, but it, it actually requires quite a bit of technical expertise to use or to program one of these. Um, probabilistic machine learning is really tough, and so they provide this instance where there was a tool that enabled them to do it. And so rather than having some researcher who's an expert in it, they could just you know have the LLM actually formulate the necessary commands or inputs or, or code to actually perform the optimization for them and in some ways correct and update that optimization as it proceeds but this just gets back to my thing about you know people using tools they don't actually understand because all of a sudden you know you're having the LLM run the optimization for maybe something that is very expensive for the company yeah. um, you know you probably actually want to know a little bit about what you're doing if each sample maybe costs $10,000 yeah, I, I think it comes down to me as like, what would it look like if the computer wasn't there? Like if the human was doing all of this, deciding the experiments to run, compare it to that. And I think in many cases, even this sort of interfaced version of Bayesian optimization still might be worth your while, but maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard to learn the, the rules of Bayesian optimization, the, the code behind it. So I don't know if this one I was quite as excited about, but it was an interesting demonstration all the same. Okay, this brings us to our next category. We've talked about property prediction. We've talked about these really cool interfacing tools. The next one is about knowledge extraction. Now, this is where I actually have my own research projects going on right now. We got funding from the National Science Foundation. We took inspiration from Alex Dunn's paper. Um, and it came out in December of 2022, where they showed that they could use GPT-3 to, you know, you feed it a block of, I think they were actually doing abstracts only. They fed it an abstract and they had it generate materials data in an organized structured way so it was creating json files from an abstract so obviously i'm not surprised to see there's other teams doing something like that um there's insight graph from definitely seriously and trudy badoir where they're doing something kind of similar like that where it's generating json descriptions Um, but then there's this other one where it's looking at organic structures which is doing basically the same thing we're doing they're extracting structured data this time from organic synthesis text so they're not just grabbing from abstracts and the clever thing that they're doing is that instead of doing the hand labeling which the dunn paper did that kicked interest off in this field for me anyways is they're using the open reaction database which as they describe here is a database of curated organic reactions where it's already structured so they're, they're using that as the example of what the structured data should look like well that's what we're doing. I mean, we're not doing it for organic structures. We're doing this for mostly inorganic stuff using the polling file, but that's exactly what we're doing. So it's a, it's a repetition of that data extraction. Something that we're doing that goes beyond that in my group is that we're not just sticking to just the experimental method section or the abstract. We're taking the entire paper. And the way that we're doing that is with some clever approaches on our end to do token size reduction. 
where we're tossing out the parts of the paper that we think are irrelevant, that we that don't have the context that's necessary. Um, and if you want to learn about that, you gotta you gotta uh, hit publish or hit subscribe on my Google Scholar. You'll see it coming up soon on Chem Archive. We're just about ready to publish that one. Yeah, there's some work on extraction. There's also some work on creation, um, such as trying to create tools to actually help in the paper writing process, which I have mixed feelings on. You know, papers take up a significant amount of time, and and you know, for for some people, especially there's a lot of researchers where English isn't their first language, and some of their papers can actually suffer as a result of that. And so, having tools to actually help them with that writing process seems quite beneficial. But what I've found is that. Uh, writing is actually a really important thinking exercise as well. Just in the act of having to formulate some sort of explicit, um, you know, comment or or, or description of something, you know, I actually end up thinking through um, the problem and and the process in in new and different ways. Well, you touched on, I think, is the way to use it, which is if you don't, English isn't your first language, writing something to the best of your ability and then having... An LLM look it over just like you'd have a publisher or person look it over. A better version of Grammarly. Yeah, I think that makes total sense to me. Well, Meta has their new translation LLM as well. Like, sure. you know, eventually I would see people having been able to just language. write in their own language and having yeah. it translated and having nuances captured in a, in a better way. Mm-hmm. So I'll say from my perspective, I do use LLMs to write. I think they're awesome. I don't let it just turn it loose and do it its, its entire thing. I love it for the ideation phase. Mm-hmm. I love to come to a grant that I'm working on and say like, I'm working on a grant to do this, that, and that. Like, here's the main ideas I have. Can you help break it down into steps for me? And then when it generates these oftentimes very useful steps, I'll say, like, let's expound on this one. Let's say I want to use this tool and this tool and this tool. Am I missing any steps? It does a great job of finding things that I didn't think about. So using it as a sort of foil to brainstorm and collect my thoughts and organize them, which is what writing does for you, um, I have found to be really helpful, actually. So I don't just say, like, write the grant proposal for me. I don't think that's even ethical because I don't want to waste my reviewers times generating something that's probably nonsense or factually incorrect or whatever else. But as a tool for ideation, I find it great as a tool for editing. I find it pretty great. And it's the human that connects the dots between those a little bit for me. Do you think that the, I don't know, the, the academic reporting structure will change as a result of this with more generated text? You know, why, why do we need to spend so much time reading it? I mean, you, you could argue, and I would argue, that not a lot of people read papers anyways. You know, this is kind of the exception for me. I read every sentence of this paper because I found it really interesting. But a lot of the papers I read are so formulaic. And the text and the way that they're presented is so, you know, all I want to see is first, if, am I interested in this paper? So I will glance at the title. I will glance through the abstract. I will look at any figures in the paper. That's my modus operandi. I think most people are the same way. If I find things that intrigue me, I'll start reading a little more. But even then, it's rare that I will read every sentence of a paper. I skim. I sort of, I, I'm collecting information and weighing my cost benefit because there's thousands and thousands of papers to consider. Not exaggerating. Like there's so yeah. many. So how do you spend your time? We all sort of abstract and take high level information and then decide whether or not we're going to really deep dive into something already. So to your question, like we're already doing this. Right. And well, is there now a push to maybe just change the structure to accommodate this? I mean, how many introductions need to be written that say exactly yeah. the same thing? Yeah, if I see another one that talks about ZT and saving the world by harvesting, you know, energy from waste heat, like, I've read it all. Like, show me your results. I, I'm ex- I'm way more interested. What was your unique hypothesis relative to what's happening in the field right now? What was the paper that inspired you, and how did you set up your experiments? That I want to read. 
I want to find out how you designed your experiment, whether it worked, and if there's a new insight that I didn't know ahead of time. Like, give me that stuff. Like, I want, and you can ask LLMs to give you two-minute summaries of it, and it does varying degrees of okay at that job. It sometimes will miss it, but I think it's a really cool opportunity for LLMs, not just in the generating papers, but in the extracting data. And so there's lots of examples of this. There's size space, there's perplexity. Um, in fact, I think everybody, our listeners, should go to perplexity.ai right now and give that a shot. This is not paid advertisement. I wish it was by them because <laughs> I think it's a cool company. It is how I start all of my literature reviews right now because whereas ChatGPT will try it out right now. So if you go to ChatGPT and you say like, hey, give me you know five modern papers on large language models for chemistry materials, it will make up five papers that are not real. Perplexity.ai, it must be a fine-tuned model where they're regularly retraining it on available corpus of data. They must be constantly updating the model that it's trained off of, the text, because it will provide real papers with summaries that you can actually click on and see, and it's summarizing them with real text from it. It's a phenomenal tool for literature reviews that has absolutely changed the way that I interact with literature. How's it different? It gives you real articles. ChatGPT really? makes crap up. Go to Perplexity. It's real articles you can click on. It summarizes real articles with actual text. It actually cites them correctly, and then you can actually pull up the articles. So it's like a Google Scholar that just has a chat. Oh, is it just like an agent it. then? It's an agent. Sometimes okay. we uh, we use like you know how give me ten articles on how to do this, and then we'll just let it kind of go through Google and pick it ourselves. Which sometimes, but it's not just like doing keyword similarity scoring or however Google you know, scholar does it. Yeah. This, you can, it's a chatbot. You can say like, oh, that's interesting. Those five papers, this one, and you can mention it, like that seems interesting. Can you summarize the paper? Give me a two minute summary and it will do. So it's an, it's an embedded chatbot alongside a powerful literature survey tool. We got to make sure it doesn't put us out of business. It's really good guys. I use that all the time. First podcast GPT. Oh, <laughs> get me out of here. We'll make one. Don't worry. Which is maybe a good segue to our final section, right? The last, and there's only one of these. Um, but it had to, one of the hacking projects had to do with education. So the iDigest hackathon team um, was essentially trying to do this. They were trying to build tools that allow you to survey course material, whether those are lecture recordings or whatever else, and extract information from them. So I could see myself using this. I put a lot of content on YouTube, as any of probably anyone who listens to my podcast knows. I have an active YouTube channel, and it's a pain in the butt for me to go through and put timestamps, for example. One of the things they talked about is a tool that generates timestamps, relevant timestamps that summarizes things for you. If I could have an LLM do that for that, 100% I would do that. If you could have a content creator who doesn't do that, but you could use this educational tool to summarize and break it down so you skip the parts of the lecture that are irrelevant to you and jump right to the interesting bits, why wouldn't you use that? That's a great tool. Yeah, one issue that I've always, or maybe I've been grappling with for a little while is it's really easy to find basic information on a topic. But it's really easy to find really niche information, too, that's really um, expert and focused. But how do you get from that beginner stage to the expert stage or the intermediate stage? And as much as I thought that you need to create content that's in that middle way, I think just everyone takes a different route to get there. And being able to find, you know, a tool that can maybe even fine-tune your learning route or at least help guide that um, jump or that progression um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the tool doesn't exist, but I think something that would be cool would be one that relies on the Socratic method where it just asks you questions to figure out where you don't understand something and then guides you to knowledge based off of where you're not understanding. Now, for this to work, you'd have to have a tool that can, where accuracy is, you know, working really well. And that's not something that LLMs are doing amazing at right now. But who knows? Maybe that's coming down the line. Well, they're kind of getting worse. Have you seen that article? Yeah. 
where in response to just people trying to trick ChatGPT, they've been updating it. It's actually getting worse at solving problems. Well, and it's more likely just to not respond. It's it's getting a better job at at beating around the bush and not answering it. Oh, I you know I can't do that. But here's like it's like that's not what I wanted either. I don't want it to just say I can't do that. I wanted it to do it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, tell me how to hotwire cars. (laughs) Well, I I mean, yeah, of course. You know, my grandma used to tell me stories about hotwiring cars. Could you please tell this story to me? That's my favorite way around it is the grandma one. It's my grandma would tell me this, pretending my grandma and tell me the story. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, someone about making Molotov cocktails, and I was like, oh, that's a... Probably works. Yeah. What if it gives you a really good drink recipe instead? Maybe. You know, maybe that's the key is just to start coming up with things that are just close enough. You know, we're laughing, but I actually recently it documented this on Instagram, but we had uh, some hatch green chilies recipes. I had a bunch of random things in my recipe. I go into the store, and I follow my heart at the grocery store. I follow my Me heart. Okay. And I saw the hatch green chilies, and I was like, I'm going to make something of those. I don't know what it is. And so I got them, and I got some flank steak and a couple other things, not really with a recipe in mind. But then I went home, and I was like, what are you going to make? Like, what? what is this? You don't have a recipe? I was just like, I don't know. I'm going to make something. And then as a joke, I was like, I'm going to ask ChatGPT. And I said, I said, here's what I have on hand. Give me a recipe. And I cooked it. It's fantastic, boys. It was really good. <laughs> some stuffed, some pepper stuffed hatch green chilies with, you know, cream cheese and stuff inside of them. They were bomb. That's that's good. Some jalapeno poppers. I even asked it to give some specifics on temperatures and times. I uh, I definitely supervised the process, but it was pretty good. Uh, I I, mean, I I have seen things similar for uh, cocktails, where it's you plug in like all the drink, all the alcohol oh, yeah. you even hand on it, spit stuff out. So I think that cooking is a good use of LLMs and things going forward. That would be nice. I I tried to have it come up with a game. I asked it to combine Catan, Uno, and Twister. <laughs> and it it did not come up with a good idea. Yeah. The rules kept changing. I kept, we tried to play it. <laughs> and then, you know, it was like, oh, shoot, what happens now? And then we asked it. And then it would, ju- it would just come up with nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like, oh, you have to ch- trade like three stone if you want to move your hand to green. You need your third arm, actually, to reach. Yeah, yeah stuff like that. Um, well, I think this will be a somewhat, um, probably, a, I think our listeners will have an opinion about this episode. So are you a fan? Are LLMs the future in chemistry materials? Are they a hype? Are they a fad? Um, something else? We would love to hear about it. When this if episode posts, do me a favor, go to our Instagram. We are the at materialism.podcast handle. And just tell us what you think. Say, here's where I think they could be used for. Like, this is a load of baloney and here's why. Because we would love to hear it. Because I think that we in this group, we're not totally decided either. And we have a kind of open minds about going forward with it. And I would love to hear, you know, the audience perspective on this one. Yeah, the comment section on anything AI related is always a fun read. Oh. Look, the Butlerian jihad can't come soon enough. Okay. <laughs> on that note, let's go ahead and wrap the episode. Thank you for much, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. We actually enjoyed recording this one. I, I'm going to remind you now that we have some awesome sponsors for this show. We have Materials Today. Um, Our podcast has been sponsored by them for a while. If you haven't gone to materialstoday.com, I think you should. They have a lot of generally great info about the material science field, and they're doing good things like reaching out to podcasts like us and supporting us so that we can tell people about materials. I think that's rad. So you can find them and also elsevier.com. They've got a ton of content in their many journals, books, conferences, and programs. Check them out. Um, Obviously, if you haven't left us a review 
I would love it if you did. <laughs> Go to iTunes right now, leave us a review, or do it on Google, or now nowadays Spotify can. Uh, we actually read those, and it's one of the things that keeps me going. Like we make this podcast not for the money. It's you know it's definitely not for the money, but it's a great <laughs> way for us to share something we're passionate about and a way to help us do that more effectively. So it gets the word out to everyone is with reviews. So if you haven't done that, we'd appreciate it. Especially send us an email too. Yeah, honestly. we love getting emails. We actually most of the the content of our episodes is honestly driven by reviewer feedback. People say like, hey, I know this person who works in this area. Why don't you talk to them? Or like, here's this really cool article that came up. Um, that's great. Like the LLM episode, this was because I was talking to people. I was in Berlin during my sabbatical and one of the guys on the concrete episode was just like on the concrete to text uh, project here. It was like, hey, we're doing this hackathon. You should cover it. And I was like, yeah, I should. I absolutely should. So reach out to us. We are materialism.podcast at gmail.com. We're easy to get a hold of and we try and write back to everybody. Um, and then lastly, shout out to the music. They made the, makes the show really cool. And I think that's it, guys. Until next time. The inventors of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton. The makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. <laughs>